everybody. Welcome to the Dunces Corner. We have been resurrected, inspired by the visit of a very special guest. It is Dr. Kristen Collier from the University of Michigan, who is joining us for this episode today. I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Minor. Oh, just kidding. He actually got abducted by aliens. I think he was let go on a crop circle somewhere in Iowa. But we are joined with some regulars. We've got Trey returning. Hello, Trey. Hello. And is, has anything new happened since we last recorded an episode? Um, I don't think. Well, yeah. So Catherine, who is a frequenter on this podcast, and myself actually got married over Yay. since uh, in in the absence of the Dumpsons Corner for a little <laughs> bit. So uh, we got married, and we're also expecting our first baby yes. coming in September. Wow. So awesome! Lots, lots of blessings for yeah, us. It's awesome. Do you hope that the baby's more you or more Catherine? You know, that's up for debate. Uh, I think I probably know Catherine's answer. Um, <laughs> but uh, but we shall see. Whose dance moves will the baby get? That's what Absol- I want to know. Well, on the ultrasound, it's very clear that the baby probably has Catherine's dance moves. Okay. Because he's moving around, moving and grooving. Yeah. Um, and also so. because you have no dance moves. Well, they're yeah. just... No, and yeah. it, it's yeah. no well, <laughs> Rachel, just vastly inferior to yeah. Catherine. No, to Trey's defense, he is a pretty good dancer. Yeah, better did than you me. see yeah. his first dance at the wedding? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, how could you miss it? Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. It was choreographed. It was. It was totally phenomenal. Okay, well, congrats, Trey. Um, and I'm glad that the baby hopefully will get Catherine's dance moves. And then we are also joined by another regular hunter. You have returned to the show. Hello. Yes, I'm back. This is my second time on here. So yes. I'm excited. That's right. And I think the first time it was a Lenten episode. Too. It sure was. I got to talk about how I went crazy, not listening to music uh, for a Lenten experience. That's right. And that I have not tried since. So. Yeah, I don't know why it's a tradition to, to bring you for Lent or something. You bring yeah. solemnity. Desert vibes. <laughs> solemnity. Know. You got the good desert, desert vibes. vibes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then something new has happened to you amidst the between episodes, but quite recently. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, the last episode I was a freshman. Now mm-hmm. I am in my last semester graduating, and uh, or the last episode that I was on, and I will be going to the University of Dayton for my master's in theology. So I'm really excited. Awesome. And also to uh, go there for a graduate assistantship. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that'll be really great experience working with those professors mm-hmm. and learning theology yeah. uh, in a very relational way. Yeah, so. for the listeners who don't know what that means, it equals full ride <laughs> plus money, which is impossible to get for a theo- theology master's. Mm-hmm. As my... 20-something years of paying off my master's degree could tell you. Uh, Dr. Pedraza here definitely wrote one of my uh, letters of recommendation. Mm -hmm. So I give give the credit to to him and the other professors that wrote those for sure. Well, you made it easy on us, Hunter. Yeah. (laughs) And then we are joined by a new dunce, Rachel. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How did you find your way to our (laughs) theology group? I was um, very actively sought out by Dr. Whitten, very actively. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, really just the Lord, honestly. There was really no way. It got to a point where I couldn't deny coming here. Like, <laughs> it, it was just all set out. And I said, oh, my goodness. Sorry. 
And and now you have subjected yourself to the suffering of being in two of my classes so uh, far. Yeah. 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 And you're currently living to tell about it. <laughs> currently. Yeah. <laughs> yep. She says with a smile and nothing else to say. <laughs> no, great classes, great classes. <laughs> and finally, we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Kristen Collier, who's been visiting us to deliver two powerhouse lectures for our bioethics lecture series. Welcome, Dr. Collier. Thanks, Brian. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are pumped to have you here. And by the way, I should say, apart from all of your numerous accolades, the positions that you hold at the University of Michigan, the publications that you've made, uh, probably the most important one being your your family that you mm-hmm. have uh, mm-hmm. brought into communion with one another. Mm-hmm. I will say this, it's pretty down on the list, but it, I've got to say it. In the burning cesspool uh, of darkness that is Twitter. <laughs> you... I was so worried. Well, well, like, what are you going to say? Yeah. I thought you were going to say Michigan football. And I'm nope. like, here we go. Nope, nope. Here we go. <laughs> you have one of the classiest timelines. Oh, yeah. thank you. You're like a light in the Twitter darkness. That's very kind of you to say, full of Taylor Swift gifts. Are you allergic to awesomeness? Then That's right. Other sundry topics Which I totally that... approve yeah, of. Yeah, I know you do. I yeah. know you do. If you need your fill of Taylor Swift. Are you allergic to awesomeness? Plants and crocheting. Please yeah. follow her. It's an odd mashup of Taylor Swift. Are you allergic to awesomeness? Crochet, theology, medicine. Yeah. Yeah. What a wholesome. All, I mean, wholesome you can't get it somewhere profile. else, you know, totally. Yeah. All amazing Thank things. you. That's very kind. She is worth the follow, That's folks. Very I, kind. I mean that. folks, we find ourselves in the midst of Lent, and I just am wondering, how's it going, guys? You know, it's an interesting thing going from ordinary time and then being thrusted into the desert of Lent, um, almost without, you know, if you were, you know, if you were good about being a a good Catholic, you would, of, of course, prepare. But as most of us probably find ourselves, it it, it just starts, mm-hmm. you know, tomorrow, and we're in it. Um, it's been good. There's definitely, you know, Lent is always an opportunity where, like, you go to the desert, and the things that, like, you already kind of struggled with are just magnified and brought to the surface, um, many of which have been brought to my attention by my wife, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, Thankfully. many... And well, you married up, Trey. I certainly did, and many of my Lenten promises or penances come from uh, suggestions, or um, yeah, we'll call them suggestions for my wife. <laughs> 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 but no, they 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 are really really um, they're good. They're uh, I'm definitely learning a lot about how to. Um, how to live my virtues well and how to grow in definitely some areas where there are absence of virtues. Mm -hmm. So going well so far, hopefully, hopefully it uh, gets a little easier, but in the spirit of Lent probably won't uh, (laughs) as, uh, as Lent goes on. This is actually probably the first Lent that I really prepared. And it was in part because I'm doing some student teaching at a local high school and I was given the task of preparing the students for Lent. So naturally, I realized that as a teacher, your goal is to prepare the students, but as I'm presenting, 
I'm realizing like, oh, these are things that I should be doing as well. Right, these are right, things that I can be praying right. for. And what it really did was it put a lot of pressure on me <laughs> to be like, yeah. oh, I can't just like say this to them and then not do it myself. Like I've got to step up to the game. I mean, like, I'm is that a hypocrite. You, I mean, like, is that what you usually do? Or like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Usually I just tell people yeah, what yeah. they need to do. Right. And no, this is the first time that I've actually had to tell, like I've been given the task of telling suggesting people you know mm -hmm. what to do for lent mm -hmm. and so it put a lot of pressure on me and so this lent i think has been particularly more focused on not just the fasting but the prayer and the alms giving mm -hmm. because i i really tried to emphasize that for good reason uh because i knew personally too that that's what i struggled with that it's mm -hmm. it's so easy to just talk about oh what are you giving up that's like the common question but it's like how do you pray how do you give mm -hmm. and and the lord has offered mm -hmm. some ways for me to give uh through the school and then also just through interactions in Baton Rouge uh, with with uh, people that you meet yep. in <laughs> parking lots. Yep. And, and you realize, you're like, man, I literally just gave a talk <laughs> about giving to mm -hmm. people. And here's a man, like, asking mm -hmm. me for food. Oh, oh I like, see. Directly, yeah. Like, directly, like, right as I walk out my door Got in my it. car. And it's like... I thought you meant you are. like people like being rude to you in the parking lot. Like oh, taking no, no, your no. spot or cutting you off. No, he was. Yeah. Well, there's that, but uh, but no. I mean, this was a man that was like, I was like, oh wow, like this is what it means to give, and mm -hmm. it was an interesting mm -hmm. encounter. I'm not going to go through the full details just because uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have done as much as I did, like you know, like practically. Um, I think that it probably wasn't safe, uh, <laughs> but uh, but there was just a profound moment. Of just like, okay, Lord. I trust you. Like, you put this man, Mr. Richard, <laughs> mm -hmm. in my life at this moment, and I don't know who he is, but we're going to see what happens. And it was great. It was an awesome encounter, uh, an awesome Linton encounter, Linton reminder yeah. to keep up for more than just fasting, but right. also to give right. and to pray through it. Right. Well, praise God for you uh, even feeling the spirit move you to do such a thing, Hunter. But now our imaginations are running wild with what it is that you did. Oh. Don't tell us. Don't tell us. <laughs> but I, I have the image of you mm -hmm. being like, would you hold my knife, please, while I wash your feet? And here's my toothbrush, you know? Feel free to use it right now. No. Am I close? No. Okay, not really. that's good. That's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So, Rachel, in spirituality class, we have actually read about the Desert Fathers somewhat recently, you know? Yeah. And so, like, if you're thinking that by following Jesus into the desert, because that's where the Spirit leads, that you're going to be like, ah, I'm not going to be tempted because the people aren't going to be there. It'll be awesome. What did the Desert fa Fathers find out? That they're actually heightened, the temptations. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. So anyway, how's Lent been going? <laughs> I'm having a really Lenty Lent, you know, oh, it is, um, yeah, I have definitely been, I feel like thrown into the deep end in some regards, um, just through stuff that's happening in my, you know, my work life specifically. Um, yeah, it's just been kind of utter chaos. Um, mm. and you just kind of have to kind of roll with the punches. Um, mm. and I try to do that, you know, with... <laughs> With some grace, um, but it doesn't always happen. So we're definitely having a very um, a very dry Lent, um, mm. but that's okay. You know, the mm. Lord will provide. So I'm hoping we come out, you know, with a resurrection, and mm. the Lord will be good to us. 
Yeah, maybe the Lord set up this Lent just for you mm-hmm. to have a Lenty Lent. Yeah, well, you yeah. can tell him I'm not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> now, Dr. Collier, you don't celebrate Lent, but what is your take? Uh, number one, I would love to hear your vision of what do you think about Lent in general? And then secondly, how have the past couple of weeks been for you? Yeah, I think, you know, from what I know about Lent, it's a beautiful practice, right, of of having a, a time that's set apart from what I understand to reflect um, upon, you know, the the sacrifice of 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 Christ for us on our behalf. Um, and the practices that I see, as I heard you talk about, is it's not just about things that you're giving up, but I understand it's that you can add in things, whether it be um, a more dedicated prayer life or reading of scriptures. Um, I think especially in this culture, right, where there's so much um, focus on ourselves to have some time to reflect on, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the work of Christ and um, our role in um, the, the story, the redemptive story and our, our, um, our future ahead of us and an and, and eschatological story of what it means to think about our mortality and to have the, I think, the beautiful practice of Ash Wednesday that I do not observe, but um, just is really a powerful witness. And especially, you know, I and I was out on that day, and I saw many of my patients and, and many colleagues um, walk around with the ashes on the forehead. Just this this memento mori, right? Of like thinking about uh, about our, our 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 origins and, and where we will return, and have that contemplative practice, but also to be this sort of countercultural symbol against this um, this this idea that death isn't real. I think that's just a beautiful beautiful tradition, beautiful practice. Um, over the past couple of weeks, um, you know, just, you know, many of you know this, but um, I've been very busy um, with getting back to talking about, um, you know, theology and, and medicine and faith um, with many friends and colleagues across the country. So happy to be here. Um, recently, I've been able to also visit um, Mercy Health College um, in Des Moines, Iowa, and talk about sort of thinking about the whole person in medical education and pre-medical education. And I'm really looking forward to this weekend actually flying to Portland and talking about um, St. John Henry Newman and his work um, on the idea of a university and how this relates to medical education. So just really happy, I think, in this reprieve, at least for now in the pandemic, to get back out and as we're meant to do, like commune with others and conversations that matter. I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to be here in particular today. Mm. Yeah, we're going to be able to say that we knew you when because you decided to visit our humble community. <laughs> it's beautiful here. Yeah. It's beautiful here. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the Ash Wednesday, mm-hmm. and it just reminded me. So, like, typically the minister of the ashes can say one of two things. And one of them is repent and believe mm-hmm. in the gospel. Mm-hmm. But I always want the other one. The other one For is sure. remember that you are dust, and to mm-hmm. dust you shall return. Mm-hmm. I just kind of love yeah. Getting smudged on the forehead and telling me that I'm dust. Yeah. It's like good, you know, you just got to remember yeah. that. Sister Teresa, the Pauline, yeah. pa- Pauline nun, she, I posted on Twitter, she, she tweeted mm-hmm. out like, wordle for Lent, death. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like yeah. every every day, wordle should be death. No, totally. Yeah. It's also totally. fascinating to see all the different types of crosses, right, that are, <laughs> are imaged upon our foreheads. Mm. There, uh, mm. it's always interesting to see all the different. What? What are you looking at me for? I feel a little attacked by that statement. <laughs> Why do you feel attacked? <laughs> so I went to mass in the parish that I work at, mm. 
And uh, there's a young associate who I oh, work no. closely with. <laughs> oh, no. Who um, I went and received my ashes from, and you can just say they were temple to temple. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was obnoxious. Your to face say was a loud. canvas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can actually see. I went back on the live stream and watched because you can see <laughs> as I am walking up the aisle to receive my ashes. He starts laughing at me. Oh, like no. he like it's an impending doom. Yeah. Like he knows. <laughs> yeah. He knew. The Here's worst. Looking oh. at you, Father Matt. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, since we've got Dr. Collier here, we would be foolish to not draw upon the riches of her wisdom and experience. And so, Dr. Collier, I happen to be browsing some of your talks, um, which are always phenomenal, but I came upon one that I thought was a bit different. Mm -hmm. And you were explaining to a group a bit of your conversion story. And then in last night's talk, you even sort of threw in little tidbits that mm. I, you know, I, when I was talking to other people who were there, they just were fascinated by the little things that you would say about your life. And one of the things that you mentioned was that though you were raised in some sense with some sort of moralism, right. um, nevertheless, you referred to yourself as both secular and a materialist. Right. And now you, are a Christian who just this morning at your lecture was passionately talking about the power of the healing of Jesus Christ and how his revelation can bring the human mind and the human heart to the fullness of truth and the fullness of goodness. So that's a huge <laughs> yeah. change from one to the other. Yeah. So um, I think it would be great to just hear a little bit of sure. how that happened. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, yeah, it, it is really a, a, a full turn of events, right? When you go from spending most of your life um, as a waxing between being um, a secular humanist to sort of anti theist to giving a talk about the work of Jesus Christ and proclaiming Christ <laughs> as your savior, you know, um, and it's all by the grace of God. I just want to sort of say that first and foremost. Um, so yeah, just to, just to briefly sort of talk about that, because that is a really big change. I think, you know, for me to have that, um, it just shows again, everyone is, is, um, you know, uh, open, I think to, to hopefully thinking about, you know, where they are in their life and where they could go. And you know, it's never too late for anybody to sort of have this conversion, but, um, by the grace of God, I'm sitting here talking about it. But what happened was, I would say I lived most of my life as, I would say, probably a secular humanist, you know, didn't really have any encounter with scripture um, at all, never heard scripture, never went really to a church. Um, I had no contemplation about the things um, that are that are transcendent or any um, sort of uh, contemplation outside of, especially as a scientist, about the material world. And then went through my um, undergrad career as a scientist, um, uh, married my high school sweetheart, uh, um, went through medical training. And it was actually in my medical training, I would say, that um, I started having more sort of, I think, uh, of, a, of an anti-theist view, actually, probably because of the suffering that I saw. So I trained at Michigan, University of Michigan um, Health System, and our acuity is there is incredibly high. You know, our mortality in our ICU is like 20%. You see things that 
you just wish you really had never seen. And as a, you know, as a really a technically a lay person, you're thrown into the situation with no processing or time really to think about the things that you see. And it's actually really quite awful. And so during that time, um, you know, I think of like Jacob, like wrestling with God, I started like wrestling with God. And I think mm-hmm. it's in this wrestling that is actually like, a, a, a beautiful growth can happen. But like thinking about like, gosh, if this is if this is what I see, and this is so awful, how can God exist and be all powerful and good yet the suffering exists? And I became really angry at God, especially during one point in my residency when my, when my beloved chief resident, um, Jake was diagnosed with a very aggressive metastatic, widely metastatic cancer and thinking like, here is our shining star of our residency program. And he was going to be this wonderful doctor who was going to go out and help people. And he was taken from us. And I was so mad. I was so angry with God. Mm. Like, why God? Why? You know? Um, and that, I think that was the, probably the beginning of like my conversion. And um, I was like on a bad path. You know, I think like most doctors, right? I mean, doctors don't do well with a lot of the things that we consider to be metrics of wellness, right? Substance use, substance misuse, bad relationships, mental health struggles. And I was like, in, I felt like I was in that spot. And then so my, my life sort of chugged along and I became an attending and Tim and I started having a family. And um, around um, uh, that time, my husband's uh, dad, uh, Dr. Collier, was um, diagnosed with like a cardiomyopathy and became very ill. And my husband during that time was invited to church by a family member and he had a conversion. And I remember at that time, I was actually, re- I was really angry at that point. Like, I don't want to be married to a Christian. Like, what is this? This isn't what I signed up for. And my husband was incredibly patient and prayed for me. And we sort of chugged along. And, and then we had our fourth child, Isaac. Um, and I was in my mid-30s at this point. And Isaac um, was born somewhat prematurely, not not ter- terribly premature, but early enough that he was having some difficulty. And I remember I had Isaac and I had three other children under age five, and I had um, trouble with him in terms of we were having trouble feeding him. And I had breastfed my other three kids with no trouble. And I was really trying to figure out how to keep Isaac out of the hospital. And he wasn't feeding and he wasn't growing. And I was desperate. And so it was one night in October, I remember, and I emailed, I tried to find on the internet, my pediatrician wouldn't help me with a lactation consultant. She had someone I could go to, but I needed someone to come to the house because I had all these other children that were really little. And I Googled like lactation consultants and I called like 10 people. And one of them called me back and her name was Brandy. And so Brandy came to my house. It was the night before Halloween, I remember. And she had four little boys of her own that she could have been home with trying to get their costumes ready and such. And she sat with me and Isaac. And she was amazing. She treated Mm. Isaac and I like this beautiful pair of people that she was taking care of. And she helped me support me so and helped me get Isaac so he was able to to nurse and, and to grow and we made it through that time without him having to go to the hospital. So about a year later, Isaac turned one and I emailed Brandy and I said, Brandy, hey, this is Kristen Collier. Like, I don't know if you remember me, but you helped me as my lactation consultant a year ago when I, my son Isaac was born. And guess what? He's one and we made it because of you, you know? Mm. Thank you so much. And she said, you know, I didn't tell you at the time, but I'm a pastor's wife and I'm leading a Bible study. Um, my first one, you know, can you come? Will you come to my Bible study? And I said, you know, I don't want to come to your stinking Bible. So I didn't say that to her. But in my mind, I'm like, I rolling, like, I don't want to go to this Bible study, but I will go because Brandy helped me. And my husband's like, you really should go. You really should go. Brandy supported you, you know. So I go to her Bible study and it was at a local Lutheran church in town. And I had like a really bad attitude, you know, and I went and it was like um, a group of women. And, you know, it's maybe hard to believe for listeners who've been raised in the church, but it really was the first time I heard scripture ever. And I was incredibly, incredibly moved by it. Mm. And people said, you know, 
what was it exactly that you heard that was so moving? And I have to say, it was hearing about Jesus Christ. Um, and especially as a physician who had struggled my entire career with like making sense of stuff, to hear that this isn't the way that things were supposed to, are supposed to be, and that this, the promises of the scriptures about redemption and like a resurrection of bodies and thinking about the illness that I see and the broken bodies and even the accompaniment of Jesus, like I will be with you to the end of the age, every chair will be wiped away. I was so moved by that. And so after that, I became really motivated to like read scripture and memorize scripture. And then there was this path afterwards of all these people that came into my life that really supported my journey and my growth, um, that God had granted me this grace to sort of see things with new eyes. And I remember I was driving along on the expressway one day to work and I was listening to a, a radio show, um, a Christian radio program. And I just had this like overwhelming sense of like shame, you know, like I had been a complete nightmare. You know, I've been living my life completely arrogant, like full of pride, you know, at the gifts. These are gifts, right, that I had been given. And it's all, these are all gifts from God, you know? And I just, I, 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 I really, I might, you know, that was the point where I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to be baptized. Like this is, I'm, you know, can, you know, had this, this, this really clear view of my sin and that Jesus was my savior. And, and I was baptized. It'll be five years ago. It'll be six years this May, actually, the boys and I were baptized. Mm. That's amazing. When the, the conversion first started to happen, uh, what was your husband's reaction? Well, he was very thankful, obviously, because he had converted a few years before me. And um, he was like really patient and, and, and pleased and he supported me. And Tim is, my husband's very well-read and very, um, he loves the Lord. And um, he was, I mean, when people ask you like, who else supported you? I can't fail but mention that my husband, you know, when we've known each other, we've been together since we were 17, I'm 47, we've been here 30 years, you know? So mm. to grow with somebody like in that way over that time, we were just like punky kids to like <laughs> now like uh, parents of four and, and Christians, like we've come a very long way <laughs> um, from our like uh, beginnings. Um, but again, all by the grace of God, I have to say, but um, he was so, he's been so supportive because obviously you have your like fits and starts and your like, you know, your your questions and your struggles and, you know, your, your, you fall down and um, to have, of like the sacrament of marriage to be able to grow, um, to be conformed to, to, to the image of Christ in, in your marriage. I mean, that's that's a beautiful gift. Um, so yeah, he's been really great. Mm. I'm just imagining that first conversation after the lactose uh, lactation <laughs> yeah, consultant asked you, just like, yeah, you should totally go. To the I know. Study. Just, yeah. yeah, wink, wink. I know, totally. When he heard that, he probably was like, "This is an answer to prayers right now," you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I the wonder, struggle is real too. Mm -hmm, I'll just say yeah. about breastfeeding when yeah. it comes Gosh, to our so three hard. boys. The battle was with breastfeeding yes each yes. time like our yes. first god bless her it was a family practitioner that we went to instead of a pediatrician there was something about her that just um resonated with both of us when we went to see her we were looking for a pediatrician for mm -hmm. our first child and i i felt like this was big for me and i sort of understand why the health system does this but as a father i felt ignored right a lot of the time like right. it was always like yeah well talk to the woman and blah, blah, blah. Right. It's like, this is my kid yep. too. I would really like yep. to know like what's going to happen. And then we finally met this doctor, Dr. Farrig in Virginia. And she was just like, both of you right. and your baby. Like it was Love like it. addressing us as a awesome. family. And awesome. it was, this was so refreshing. Mm -hmm. 
And then um, when we were, you know, the, the the words failure to thrive, right? That's like I the know. thing that's like, oh, I no, know. my baby is not growing. And I know. Adrian is in tears I know, every time because totally. she wants to give of herself totally. to this child and doesn't understand what's wrong. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, God bless this doctor. She would, even though she was new to the practice, mm. she would do things like, uh, well, uh, the weight, not good. Feed him right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going right. to go to see some other patients. Right. I'm coming back. Yep. We're going to weigh him again. Yep, <laughs> and totally. then even when it wouldn't work, she'd be like, let's just try this one more time. Yep. And then she would like sneak us back to get us onto a scale yes. really quickly into yes. a room. I mean, yes. she was with us like every step of the way. Mm. And then it wasn't until we found a lactation consultant whom we have named Yoda now. Cause she just, <laughs> the wisdom, she, the wisdom <laughs> right. I just, something clicked when yep. she mm. helped Adrian with Joseph mm. and it just changed everything for us. So not to say that we didn't battle out with each of our kids, I know. Um, but man, what an adventure. I know. I just you know the people that support women and babies and families, like they're the hands and feet of God, you know. We and we were talking last night, right, about how um we feel like there should be more support for families and moms and babies. But yeah, just thinking about the folks that go into lactation or pediatrics that are like helpful for especially that vulnerable time and so much harder than you think it's gonna be, right? Um mm. those special moments, yeah, people like Brandy and people that helped you guys, yeah, those those folks can make such a difference. I mean, literally such a difference in people's lives, you know. Thank you, Brandy and Yoda. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, I can speak from, you know, Catherine and I's limited experience yes. with, you know, us becoming a new family, right? right? And having a baby on the way in September. And, you know, so, you know, we started to go, Catherine started to, you know, go back to her OB, start to like do her prenatal care and stuff. And it was really shocking that like whenever I go there, they don't see me as her husband. Mm. They see me as her support partner. Mm, mm-hmm. And so whenever they're talking to her, I I'm kind of like kind of yeah. kind of trying to lean into like, <laughs> hey, like I'm the father. Like we're ma- like, yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. Or like even in I the know. way that like, you know, you've written a lot about, mm-hmm. you know, COVID visitation policies and you've written a lot about how mm-hmm. like a lot of those policies have really contributed to the disunity between families and their patients, which has ultimately led to negative patient yes. outcomes. Yes. Um, and so, you know, and Catherine and I, you know, going to our, you know, our ultrasound appointments, you know, they have really silly uh, rules, even such like, mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to wait in the waiting room. I have to wait in the hallway. And mm. Catherine gets to wait in the waiting room in the nice comfy chairs. And I have to wait in the hallway for somebody to like, to to wave me. Yes. In. And then mm-hmm. we go in the ultrasound room and they're like, all right, goodbye. Mm-hmm. And then Catherine goes see her OB, which for some reason I can mm-hmm. go to the ultrasound, but not the o- not the actual doctor's oh, visit. That's so strange. And since like I have a nursing background, I like would like to ask some questions and kind of like have some information, but they're like, I haven't even met Catherine's OB. (laughs) I have no idea, Mm. you know? And like, that's just like the norm at like where we're getting prenatal health and where we're getting it from is, you know, considered the standard and Mm -hmm. sort of like the utopia of women's healthcare in our area. But like really, you know, like there, it's so, you know, it's not even interesting. It's sad. (laughs) It's sad to see how, um, you know, yeah. In some instances, you know, where places are considered, you know, the best place to receive health care, the best patient satisfaction, whatever I've experienced often, you know, and this is, of course, not, you know, a generality, mm-hmm. but from my mm-hmm. experience, it seems that a lot of times they have a lot of policies and 
institutional, you know, the ways that they do things that are just, you know, not um, pro-life, I guess. Or not aimed at like really unifying the family together. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And even just thinking about the importance of being able to have, you know, someone at the bedside with you and how actually like important that is and um, how the science really shows, and we talked about this a couple of nights ago, the power of having someone with you just at appointments or at the bedside. I always say like the the best prognostic sign of someone who's ill is actually a loved one at the bedside and how that's been marginalized, especially during the pandemic. But we were talking about, which I think is a really beautiful example of the science supporting the value actually of loved ones at the bedside or family at the bedside. Um, Wes Ely, who's a, who's a, a Catholic ICU doc and uh, at Vanderbilt did a study with his team called the COVID-D study that was published this um, during the pandemic about they looked at folks who were hospitalized with COVID-19 um, to see like what could be done to prevent them from getting in hospital delirium, right? And for the listeners who don't know, delirium is like this confusion that can happen while you're hospitalized. We want to do everything we can to prevent it because delirium increases the risk of death and the risk of um, it's a predictor of one year increase when your mortality and when you if you're earlier in the hospital you oftentimes have to um, have like um, a chemical or physical restraints which increases the risk of falling etc so what can we do to prevent delirium and they looked at like all these different things like technologies and medicines and everything and one of the things that was most predictive of someone not getting in hospital delirium was the presence of a loved one at the bedside so again mm-hmm. like 2022 right when we have all the science right the presence of another human burn person at the bedside was like so powerful. I just think that's so beautiful. It speaks to this like relational nature that like is built into our realness because and then our and our and and the reality of 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 life because of God, right? And his relational nature and and he's the author of all our science. So of course we're built to flourish when we're in relationship to one another. But the the concept of relationality, um especially as as you talk about it, the the in the medical encounter, can we reclaim the value of that and especially thinking about about, um, your encounter and in, in the healthcare system around um, obstetrics and gynecology. Yeah, that is um, that is very sounds like very suboptimal and not inclusive for you, right? In the participation right. of this beautiful um, growing of your family, I mean, to exclude you in some way that that doesn't seem right. Yeah, it's really odd, and like I can understand if there's like some sort of scientific basis to it, maybe. So like 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 you mentioned, like right. at the height of the pandemic, right. like sure. there's definitely like sometimes where like those policies did contribute to like a less spreading of COVID around the hospital. Right. But I think like at the point that we are now, I don't think that me standing in the hallway is going to significantly. No, that doesn't make any sense. The amount of, of, of opportunity for spread of COVID-19. It's really silly. Um, COVID makes for bad anthropology. Oh my yes. goodness. As you're talking, yes. Dr. Collier, mm-hmm. I remember, so one time I was in the airport mm-hmm. and I was, of all things, going back to California for the funeral of my uncle who passed away from COVID. Hmm. And this Gosh. is a funeral that happened months and months after he died. I mean, just to get right. closure, right? right. You're not allowed to see the body, touch the body. Right. We don't know what happens if you are around the body. So that was hard enough. But I remember being in the airport and this young lady who was walking in front of me, like, totally dropped her glasses or something like mm-hmm. that. And my gut reaction was like, pick up the glasses. And then I went mm-hmm. to bend down for him and I was like, I shouldn't touch her glasses because mm. the pandemic, you know? Oh. And so she kind of like noticed. And then she picked them up no. and kept on going. I was just like, man, I can't even be like a human being right now. This is I know. so weird. I know. Like, yeah. like the, the first time I went grocery shopping mm-hmm. in the midst of the pandemic, it was almost like a... um 
apocalyptic movie, you know? And I it was know. like, let me put on my mask. Like, do I need a crowbar? I'm going to get know. all my Lysol right. wipes and everything. And it's like, know. let me run in there as fast as I can. And it was like playing Pac-Man in the aisles. Like, oh, <laughs> there's a person. Let me just go around this aisle or whatever. Like, what's the strangest feeling and a way that like humans aren't really supposed to be like that. I know. Yeah. I think it was interesting too. Like I – came home in the middle of the pandemic. I was overseas mm. and it was different there. Like masks weren't a thing. I like, mm. so like the first time I ever wore a mask was traveling home. Um, and then like I flew internationally. So then I was like terrified, right? Like right. to even right. touch my family. Like I was yeah. like, my mom picked me up from the airport and I was like, I'm going to sit in the back seat. And she was like, stop it. Like you're going to sit next to me. Like <laughs> it had been, you know, over like, almost a year since I had seen my family. Oh, man. Um, and then it was like, I literally had to convince myself to some degree of like, okay, like I'm not going to like hurt my family by being around them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But it was like, my mom was like, mm-hmm. well, you'll stay at the house. And I was like, no, like I'm not going to stay at the house. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to spend, you know, my two mm-hmm. weeks somewhere else. Right. And she was like, you're being ridiculous. And I do think to some degree I probably was a little like, but I didn't know. No, right. right. We didn't know. Right. And, and the thinking about just the – how the pandemic and the virus made us, as you talked about, Brian, about how we were made to see each other as a threat, you know, yeah. and at some level, we, unfortunately, because of human nature, um, we do view sometimes other people as threats to us in some way or the other. But the pandemic, right, has really made, we made a society of people who were like afraid of each other because we thought of each other as like a threat to our lives and the consequences of that, Um it's really upsetting, and it reminds me of, you know, I mentioned this last night about how Dan say, who's a Catholic physician, talks about how all illness is a spiritual event, right? Because, you know, um, spirituality in its core is anchored into meaning, and um, we have meaning within our relationships, and the pandemic has disrupted so many relationships, right? So it has been this spiritual catastrophe in terms of thinking about how we view each other and the healing that has to happen out of that. Um, yeah, we have a long way to go, but I agree it's been it's been a catastrophe. You know, whenever the pandemic first started in May of 2020, that was like my first, I had just finished my first semester in nursing school and um, I got my first job on the floor on a step down ICU that was pretty much like if you're on a ventilator or like you needed like high flow oxygen for mm-hmm. any reason besides COVID and you and you weren't in the ICU and you couldn't be on a regular floor, you were there. Mm-hmm. Um And I remember I was a nurse tech and at some point, you know, this is when, you know, over the summer, right after COVID. So the visitor policies were pretty much zero, Mm -hmm. um, unless like you were actively passing. Right. So my job for weeks was to literally take the iPad around and literally just bring them into the Mm -hmm. patient's room and allow them to have some sort of dialogue mm-hmm. with their family. And in and, and mm-hmm. some of these cases, these patients were sedated. They were on the ventilator. Right. They weren't responsive. They were, some of them were in a coma. And I would bring the iPad around and I would get the patient ready. I would like fix all their sheets, you know, you know, because mm-hmm. again, regardless if they're in a coma or not, they still need dignity, right? Yeah. Even if they can't take care of themselves, I take care of right, them because right. they have right. that dignity to be right. taken care of. So I would show the patients mm-hmm. um, to their families just with an iPad, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes like it would just be silence for no, right. minutes. Mm. They just want to see them. I know. Right. And I would kind of talk to them and I would sort of let mm. them know that like, you know, like they may not open their eyes, but we don't like right. talk to them, totally. talk to them. You know, they may be able to hear you, totally. you know, like they're hearing your voice. Totally. They may still be able to process that, totally. you know, and it was just, 
it, it all goes back to relationship. Mm-hmm. It all mm-hmm. goes back to relationship. And sometimes I get frustrated with science because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'm in healthcare, so I love science by by itself, by virtue I'm in the field. But sometimes science takes a long time to catch up mm-hmm. to what we've already known all along, mm-hmm. which is humans are made to be around each mm-hmm. other. <laughs> and sometimes I get annoyed with um, academia because I was like, hmm, let's see if if we put people together, if their emotional state will get better. Yeah, and it's like, well, duh. I know. I know. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't need a, a rant. You know, I don't need a random controlled trial right. to tell me that like humans like to be around each right. other. And that generally makes us feel better. Right. But it is you cool know? when there are randomized controlled For trials sure. like COVID D that came out that showed the presence of the bedside, right? It's, it's so helpful. That's great when we have that, but we, I know it is a sort of sad state of affairs when we have to actually prove that out. But yeah, I mean, there's data that shows that, right? That like isolation from others is just as harmful to you as like cigarette smoking. Again, like, why is that, right? Um, I love the field of neuropsychoimmunology, which is like this field that shows that like our immune system, right? And our, our thoughts and uh, are connected in a way that um, supports like a relational biology. And like there's that study out of that field that shows like, um, you know, uh, if you do um, inflict like a wound, they had this group of, of uh, a, a trial where they had women and they wanted to see how they healed. And so they inflicted wounds on the box of these women with like doing like a punch biopsy. And then they like follow to see how the wound healed. And women who were p- controlling for other factors for healing, smoking, age, et cetera, diabetes, et cetera, they found that the women um, who reported, self-reported um, higher levels of marital strife actually um, healed more slowly, right? So to think about like the relationships that you have with others, positive or negative, has it a power to affect our biology, our immune systems, to the fact that like at the cellular level we're healing or not. I mean, that again supports this beautiful idea that we're so interconnected, the level that our immune system responds based on like our relationships. Like that is a beautiful thing that speaks to this interconnectedness that we can't ignore, especially if we want to try to think about doing everything you can to optimize health outcomes. Like we can't forget that like, yes, the medications and biologics and ECMO, that's all very important too. But, you know, the presence of another person, right, in your life in a, a positive way or having helping people to connect positively um in the healthcare system to others actually is also like a therapeutic intervention it sounds like you know it's crazy if somebody made it to be like that or something i don't know i mean right (laughs) it almost speaks to almost like a right uh, a design that's intentional yeah yeah Yeah. something like that one thing that i just love i mean of the many jewels that you've given to us in your talks in the past couple days dr collier but one of them is just the simplicity but profundity of asking the fundamental questions. Right. It, it reminded me of uh, Alistair McIntyre's famous opening to After Virtue, where you know there's been um, massive destruction, world catastrophic events, and we have these like scraps of paper that speak of ethical things, but we don't have the whole anymore. Mm. It's as if we're just using the words without knowing right. that they were actually integrated into a vision of the human person and human flourishing. And in your talk this morning, you mm-hmm. mentioned uh, Dr. Peter Kraft and mm-hmm. the the analogy of these three ships out mm-hmm. at sea and how we're used to thinking of sort of the, how do the ships interact with one another so they don't bump into each other, that sort of a thing that's very present in any sort of like liberal mm-hmm. political scheme. But then you also mentioned Mm-hmm. Um, the individual ship mm-hmm. being in ship shape. So mm-hmm. the sort of uh, personal virtue that's necessary to grow. And then most mm-hmm. fundamentally, what's the mission of the ships? Like, where are they supposed to be going? Right. And that's the question that nobody right. seems to be asking. I remember giving a talk to some LSU students. Some of them were psychology majors. 
And I just sort of threw out there, like, so psychology is supposed to help people get to human flourishing, right? And then they, even just saying that statement for them was like, the light bulb went off, like, I'm supposed to help people towards human flourishing, you know? Like, and then I asked the question, so what is human flourishing? And if we don't have that, then what's the goal of all the stuff that you're spending all your time doing? And to have that just... I mean, it's so fundamental, but the way that you taught it, I was like, oh, Thanks. more of this, please. Yeah, we I'm just need borrowing more from Peter Creeve. I mean, like, yeah. yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> I totally, I totally appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, even just the term, like, you know, we talk about humanism in medicine all the time. And I'm like, but what is your humanism based on? Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean to be human? Like, these terms, I agree, like McIntyre talks about dignity, justice, right, rights, um, love, even. What do these terms mean? Right. What is health? What is healthcare? To have space for our learners and for us, right? To think about these concepts is incredibly important. Yeah. Well, if you haven't noticed already, Trey has pretty much been fangirling about you for <laughs> since the moment that he knew that you were coming. Oh, that's fun. So I'm 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 ready to unleash him with a question. Trey, what what did you want to ask Dr. Collier? <clears throat> I'm joking. <laughs> well, oh no. Well, you know, whenever I started reading about some of the stuff that you're writing, I kind of my first reaction was like, finally. Oh. You know, it was sort of like it was a re- it was a reaction of like praise God. Hmm. Like this is finally been being written and shared and people are finally having the opportunity, right, to even see a worldview, a perspective that puts medicine in this framework that, like you said, like yourself, like you're not just a mechanic taking care of a machine. You're a human being taking care of another human Mm -hmm. being. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially, you know, during your talk Mm -hmm. when I was listening to you speak, at some point you started talking about how, like, we are called as healthcare providers, and especially Christian healthcare providers, to love our patients, mm-hmm. you know, to literally serve them and to care for them with charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that's often missed in medical education, the concept of like, how do you love your patient mm-hmm. well? And so, my question mm-hmm. is simply, you know, in your own practice as a as an mm-hmm. internal medicine provider, yeah. as an internist, right. and in your own practice of teaching medical school students, one how have you learned how mm-hmm. to love your patients effectively as a ca- as a Christian yeah. healthcare provider? And two, how do you teach medical students who may be uh, who may be atheists or may not believe in what you're telling them? How do you introduce them to the concept of loving their patients in a Christian worldview? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a great question. Um, right, the scripture says like we have learned to love because we've first been loved by God, right? And so thinking about that and, you know, what is what does love mean to us as Christians? I mean, love is an action, right? The ultimate source, source of, you know, thinking about the ultimate act of love is like sacrifice, sacrificial love, and Christ dying for us on the cross. And no greater love is there than one who lays his life down for his friends, right? So I never had these concepts of love before as a Christian. Um, and I just think this, this idea, right? Oftentimes we have this cultural idea of love. Um, um, but then this Christian idea of love and thinking about that as love is an action, right? And we had talked about today about, you know, uh, the, 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 the phrase around, you know, preach the gospel at all times, but use words only if necessary about what your actions demonstrate, um, how you're showing love with your actions. 
Um, and as an internist, right, I mean, I am a primary care doctor, so I, I take care of patients like over time. And again, hopefully my patients know that I love them and I care about them, right, through my actions over time for advocating for them, for coordinating their care, for um, doing my best always to see them as whole persons and not just sort of a bag of bones and blood and organic plumbing, uh, getting to know them, right? And I, it's great, right? Because now I'm, I've graduated residency in 2005, but I've had my patients since I was an intern in 2001. So these people have taken care of a really long time, right? And you see them and, and um, hopefully they can tell from, from my actions and um, not just my words, my actions that I love them. And love is a radical concept, right? I mean, to introduce the term of love into medical education, what does it mean to love your students, or to love your patients? Like, whoa, right? But again, like, if we believe that, you know, the love as we see it as Christians has the power to transform the world, like, let's let's talk about what that means and like, let's show it even more importantly in the work that we do. So we talked about today even about having this demonstration of, um, you know, um, knowing the mind of Christ and be able to have this theology of medicine that reflects Christ's perfect vision of the good and our theology of medicine should be based on certain principles about the Imago Dei and that matter bodies matter and nonviolence and working for people who are otherwise maybe have a limited voice or marginalized and having our actions reflect that. That reflects a lot love because we're we're basically trying to do the work that Christ has asked us to do and he's shown us what we should do. And so how do you have these conversations, right? Again, I think more powerful than conversations are actions and people will see what you do and then what verses we'll see what you do and your works reflect back to God. I mean, I think that's the most powerful example that you can have to demonstrate what love is. Um, but as, as you've all hinted at, right, these conversations are also explicitly important to have when we say, you know, gosh, we're asked to, you know, whether, whatever term you want to use, love our patients or respect our patients or show dignity to our patients. What does that look like? What, what, what is, what do those terms mean to you? Right. Cause I think. I think we, yeah, especially in the plurals when we have today, you know, there's so much, there are so many different ideas about this, or we, we, we say these terms, but we haven't had time to explore them to understand what they mean. That's a beauty that we can give to our students, hopefully in conversations through relationships with our students mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. It's, it's really awesome to hear about you seeing the entire person. Right. Because, I mean, at least by myself and maybe some of our listeners can relate to going to a physician or, or a, another healthcare mm. provider who you're like, hey, I have this issue. And they throw so they throw a prescription at you and they're mm. like, all right, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or they walk in and it's like 30 seconds. Like, all right, what's the problem? Okay. You have this. All right. So mm -hmm. here, here's a prescription. Mm -hmm. Here you go. Mm -hmm. um, so that's very, that's a very mechanistic view right. of, um, Reduction. Well, isn't it crazy? Because I, right, I bet if right. you polled the students at this university who want to go into healthcare, I guarantee you the majority would say, I want to go into this because I interacted with someone who cared for me yes. or one of my family right. members, and I want right. to care about people. And yet right. somehow the system beats it out of them, mm -hmm. you know, right. like until mm -hmm. you eventually become a cog in a machine. And then, right. I mean, the healthcare right. industry is not helping much because it's like, you've got to see right. this number of patients, you know, in a day in order to make this amount of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was mm -hmm. going through a major health issue just a couple of years ago, I mean, I, after getting a taste of about four or five doctors mm -hmm. and knowing that this was going to get me nowhere because they weren't actually listening mm -hmm. to my story, I started logging my notes like, 
the most important thing, I'm going to lead with these two things because mm. that's all that they're going to listen to mm. before they right. say, right. Oh, right. You, you off. you've got this, yep. this is blah, 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 whatever. So, right. I mean, I had, I had to plan my conversations oh, with the doctor, try to nudge them certain and, ways. Uh, as, and ooh. it's like horrible because like, you feel like you have to play a game. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, It's literally yeah. like you have to play a game, you have to play your cards just right because mm-hmm. if you lead with like, I'm feeling really down about this. You know, I have a lot of anxiety about this. If you say anxiety, they're going to be like, oh, well, you probably just have anxiety. And here's some, here's some, you know, here's some Ativan, which I had a doctor try and give to me Ativan for a little bit of anxiety. And I look back and I'm like, how dare you give me a sedative for just a little bit of anxiety? Um, but, you know, Dr. Collier, like as you're talking about viewing the whole person, I think one of the, components of our patients that's most missed is the spiritual components um, of their healthcare. Because, you know, we have social work that, you know, address maybe their social um, standings with housing and financial ability, things like that. We have our doctors and our nurses who care for the physical components. Um, Maybe we'll talk about like, you know, what kind of family do you have? What kind of support X, Y, and Z? Hmm. And we do have chaplains Mm -hmm. uh, to come around and and minister spiritually. But as you presented in your first presentation, a large majority of patients want to have spiritual conversations with regards to their health care, but they just don't get it. I think a number that you Mm -hmm. said was like over 50% Mm -hmm. of patients who want to have those conversations don't get a chance to. So in your practice, how have you incorporated ministering to the spiritual component of your patients? Yeah, no, that's that. Thanks for that question. I mean, I think a couple things when I think about, you know, spirituality and and patient care, I I think one, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful two-sided coin. One is like the way that I view my patients, right? Which is more of like the private side or the theology of medicine side that I spoke about, right? About how do you view your patients? You know, or do you, do you view them as sort of just like organic plumbing and bags of bones and matter, but like whatever? Or um, do you see them as, as something or someone more, right? And then again, for for many um, people who have um, faith beliefs, right? We see our patients as made in the image of God. And so um, that encounter by itself is, is sacred space, right? And the patients may not know that, but hopefully that does out, out flow out of that. Again, your demonstrated love for them and the way that you that you respect them and care about them and see them and spend time with them and respond to them. Then the other side of it, right, is understanding where the patient is coming from, from their background. So yeah, our, as we talked about last night, right, spirituality broadly um, has a has a, has a meaning um, within, you know, meaning making, right? And even for our patients who are not religious, right, our patients all anchor, everyone anchors meaning in something, right? Whether it be music or nature or mm-hmm. something else. And then for a large percent of our patients, the vehicle through which people make meaning in their spirituality is actually through a world religion, right? And they, patients come to us and their time of most greatest need, right? And they come to us oftentimes, yes, with their physical concerns and their biomedical diseases that we are managing that again is happening with, within them. But they have these deep-seated beliefs that are uh, reflect deeply held commitments, whether they belong in a sort of a religious tradition or not. And how dare I, if I'm going to say that I'm practicing patient-centered care, not understand and engage a patient on that level when we're making the care plans for the patients. Again, mm-hmm. I'm the one that's making, again, the care plans for sure are contributed to by many of my interprofessional colleagues. But I'm the one, right, as the primary I make a physician that's coming up with care plans. And how am I going to make um, a plan for you going forward 
um, based on, you know, what I think it should be. No, it should really be based on the patient's values and what gives the patient's life meaning and what they say to me matters most to them, right? So questions be like, what matters most to you now? You know, what can we hope for together as we mm-hmm. go forward into this space, right? And again, you're going to get different answers back, but you're going to understand through those questions, right, people's most deeply held commitments. And then how, as your healthcare provider, can I address your spiritual religious beliefs into your care plan? Because without a care plan that takes into account people's most deeply held beliefs, that's going to be an impoverished care plan. Either it's going to not be tailored to the individual patient, which is not right, or it's going to be based on what I think it should be. And we want to be able to engage patients on that way. And I see patients in primary care over time, mostly with chronic illness and serious illness, those illnesses, you know, by their very nature, um, engender questions of existential nature or spiritual nature. Why is this happening to me? Uh, fear of the unknown. And like, our patients really suffer in this space. And so uh, I, let's talk about that. Like, what are your hopes and fears about this? Because sometimes, honestly, patients have fears around what's happening that I that are actually unfounded that 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 actually I can say oh I'm so glad you told me that like this is absolutely not we have other things we should be concerned about that this is this is totally not something we need to be concerned about right but how would I have known if I hadn't asked you know so there is there is a I mean one of the greatest gifts I can give I think as a primary care physician um, I have some skills but I think my my best skill is actually being able to give people peace of mind you know Mm -hmm. if someone can leave and they're like I feel so much better. You know, I just thought we were talking about a patient. Um, we, I didn't tell Brian the details for HIPAA, but inside I saw this patient. She was worried about something or other and able to reassure people. Oh my goodness, what a gift that is. And for those of us that's been on the other end of that who have been reassured, right. you know how powerful that is, right. right? And I bet whenever you ask the question about like, how can I address your spiritual and your faith-based concerns? Like, I bet that garners so much more trust that your patients have in you. And that really changes the patient provider relationship because it's like, oh my gosh, like nobody, maybe nobody has asked me that before. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I have to say that I'm really thankful to our healthcare system. I saw on Twitter the other day, someone said, you want to talk about innovation in primary care? The best innovation you get, you can give for better patient care is time. And I actually Mm. have a lot of time with my patients. So our visit lengths actually are really long. So I have 40 minutes with my Mm, patients for, yeah. I That's do. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh my god. For um and if some I have some if I have someone who I think can be seen shorter, um the shortest visit is 20. Um but Stop. a lot of times I'll flex around too and uh, because you know, I just I just feel like it's important to do. I have some patients who need longer than that, right? So I'll spend an hour with them because I know sometimes will, other things will be quicker. I'll go into my lunch hour or something. But you need time to be able to sort of talk with patients, understand them. And because I know patients over time because they're my patients, I'm not starting fresh with a patient when I see them. So like I already know like where right. what we're building on, our struggles, which is also helps us um be efficient with our visits, but also get into the things that people want to discuss most um most yeah. pressingly. But right. time is really, really necessary for these visits, right? Yeah. Amen. Now that you've pushed us to uh the conversation to spiritual things, uh, I want to just slightly move mm-hmm. into a tangent because sure. Hunter, you and your theological mind have written oh copious notes on the <laughs> okay on four the bullet points you've got. Yeah, yeah. So what, what do you, this what is do you your tough spot Let's for hear me. What so do you I got? was wanting to actually, I mean, building off this conversation, uh, but changing the focus, and I think it's interesting to get, of course, the perspective of the patient, but then also the perspective of the healthcare providers, and something that you were wrestling with that you told us in your uh, elaboration to. <laughs> to Israel, Mm -hmm. to wrestling with with God, and that, 
you struggle with this problem of evil, this problem of suffering that kept occurring. And for anyone who even even is is not in the healthcare setting, that's a common issue. That's a common uh, obstacle for believing in an uh, an omnipotent and a benevolent God. And so, of course, you can give a theological answer. You know, you can take Augustine's method mm-hmm. of trying to define evil. But then I think what what you're pointing out, though, really interestingly, is really in focusing on the Mago Dei, the image of God in, in each of your patients. And I think about the what it made me think of is a scripture verse, you know, from Psalm 95, that if you hear the voice of God, harden not your hearts. And how easy it is that in the face of such suffering for a healthcare provider to harden their hearts and to become angry. Because even as a person who's not even in that field at all, it's easy for me to, or for any of us, to put up a barrier, to harden our hearts, and to not believe in God or not trust mm-hmm. in Him. But yet, that seeing your patients being made in the image of God, you realize that in each of your patients, you're hearing the voice of God. And so, in each of your patients is an opportunity, as y'all were talking about, to love, to actually love your patient, mm-hmm. and to come closer to mm-hmm. them, and ultimately bring them and yourself closer to God. And so it was beautiful to hear that in your conversion story, uh, that, you know, uh, thinking of your patients in this new light. And so I guess my question from that mm-hmm. is, is how do you think that, like for you, mm-hmm. you know, not thinking of it necessarily like theologically, but like a very practical way, how, what were some of the ways that maybe writings, maybe speakers, uh, theologians, philosophers, whatever it might be, that helps you work through this problem of mm-hmm. suffering that in your yeah. own healthcare life, um, like in a very practical and a meaningful way. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, there's like the abstract sort of theological arguments. Right. Um, but when you, until you've like sat at the bedside of someone who has something really awful, like I was at a conference, um, I was the only physician there and there were, it was mostly, um, which again is it's a it's a not a not a critique but just a comment of um theologians and philosophers and we were talking about specifically about suffering and people have their you know their 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 arguments that they bring but it's just really hard to actually like have that applied or to make sense when you're sitting there and someone's dying you know that you just can't believe right you know the mother of six right who's 32 is metastatic ovarian cancer like it all sort of wants to fall apart in that moment you know and this has been my it still is my biggest thing that i really struggle with and it reminds me of like the scripture verse, like, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, like every day, you know? Um, and it's only by the grace of God. Like I, I sometimes even still, which I know is like maybe sort of like silly to think, but like, I'm just like, what if I wake up one day and I just don't believe anymore, you know? And it's honestly like this whole thing of like the suffering that I see and I come home and sometimes I'm so exhausted and I'll just be like crying, you know? I'll be like, no, you know, my, my husband's like a saint, you know? And I'll be like, Tim, you know, I was at the I was at the hospital today, and someone has to go to the hospital work with learners or, you know, um, work. And you know, you walk through um, the pediatric hospital and you see the babies and the children there, right, who have terrible things. And you're just like, what? Wh- where is God? You know. And Tim's like, God, He's there, Kristen. Jesus is here. You know, God's the Lord is with us. You know. But it's really hard, especially in a place like I don't work at a faith-based hospital. And um, it's just beautifully, I mean, you'll probably all take it for granted, but to walk around and to see the crucifix and the pictures of the saints, it's so, have the have the visual representation of like your hope, um, that is incredibly important. 
in terms of resources that I've had, um, you know, I that I've read that really were powerful. I mean, I'm sort of a Creep fan, but Making Sense Out of Suffering, Creep's book was really helpful for me. And then that's a little bit of a more of a heady book, but the one that was really practical actually was, um, it's Tim Keller's book, um, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. That book has actually been really, really helpful for me. Um, but yeah, no, it's a daily, it's a daily struggle and it's a daily like uh, a trust um, sort of faith proposition again to um to to be in healthcare and to see what you see and i agree like that the worst i think the worst thing that that can happen to you is to like have put on a, a, a callus you know you, you're so traumatized like you you risk developing this scar tissue that i said that you, that is, i get it it's like protective right um but then so i was actually asked to give like we have this beautiful memorial service every year for our patients that die at the university hospital and it's held at rackham which is like this auditorium and they have all the family members of the patients who have died that are invited and there's it's run by the chaplains and usually a physician speaker. And I was asked to be the physician speaker a couple of years ago before the pandemic. And um, I, I, I was sort of talked about this. Like if, if you come to the point where like you're no longer grieving as a healthcare provider, the loss of one of your patients, like it's time to like leave you know we should always be you know i think of jesus weeping like in john right when lazarus died like the great physician can weep you know so can i you know and i don't have the full you know um again on this side of heaven the full understanding of why these things happen but i have to i have to trust um but it's i have to say it's still it's like still like my hardest thing yeah man yeah i mean it's so many people's hardest things and and like you said it's a daily and i think it's okay for it i think it should be a daily task, yeah. a daily yeah. commitment that, like you said, you can come up with these abstract ideas. Mm-hmm. But even I realize, like studying theology, knowing that these are, uh, you know, ideas that we can talk to, and they sound great, and they sound very rational, mm-hmm. and they make sense. But then even I, like whenever I face suffering, you know, with maybe the loss of a grandparent, right. or I have a sister who's in nursing, and hearing her stories, and realizing this is different. This is harder. This is way harder than anything that in my classroom that I can, you know, start. Like, how you don't just say, like, oh, well, actually, Augustine teaches. Right. You know, you don't, exactly. that's not how you comfort. Right. Exactly. I, I would not bring that up in a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. In a like that, it reminds so. me, I have this, I give a talk on suffering, and, and I have this, my, it's like a, it's a, it's a sketch um, from like the 1600s. It's like my favorite sketch from the scriptures, besides the one I showed today of of the of Jesus and the blind man. But and it's basically like Job and his friends, right? And like the response of like just like there are no words, you know, mm-hmm. um, just that response of like when people have the grief and they have the the sorrow, just the response of his friends is to sit and listen and be present. Yeah, I know when the rubber hit, meets the road, you know, that's when the the rub is. Yeah. Mm. So something I, I picked mm-hmm. up on that mm-hmm. uh, Charles Camosi was a, a influential part of your conversion, but also even just in yes. your understanding of how to yes. wrestle with these healthcare uh, ideas and theologically and everything that goes with it. And so I noted in your uh, in your conversion story that you had said that your initial reaction to seeing this man come in was, "What is this man going to tell me?" Exactly, which is very exactly. fair. And so as a guy who, you know, I student teach at a local all-girls high school. And so I understand the challenge. Right. I've even had at work, there was uh, two girls who somehow or another, it was an odd conversation, but they start talking about, you know, like women's health and birth control. And I think one of the girls who's in med school, med school was writing something about it. And uh, I'm saying there, and we had had a former or, or previous bio 
ethics lecture from Dr. Abigail Favali. Oh, yeah. And she talked about that. And I was like, oh, actually, like, I've heard a little bit about this. And they looked at and I kind of, like, said a little bit about, like, you know, her argument, like, what she was getting at. And they just kind of looked at me like, <laughs> it was this young guy. I know. Like, this guy doesn't I know. know. And, and they were right. <laughs> Rightfully so. Like, I, I had know. no clue what I was saying. <laughs> like, I was basing everything off of one lecture that I heard. <laughs> 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 Little knowledge really, dangerous were, thing, right, yeah. Man. They, were, yeah. they were right. <laughs> and so I guess, like, for I me, like, hearing mm. that it was a guy and hearing the way in which he did it, he didn't just do it through uh, just – forcing information at you, trying to make himself seem better than you and that you needed to like, you know, be more like him and have his, his ideas, but that he walked with you and he truly tried to catechize you yes. by walking with you and uh, along the journey. And so what are, are there any like practical uh, advice that yeah. you could give yeah. to maybe men that have the job or have the opportunity to, to speak on difficult topics that, are typical like i mean even just trey saying that I with know. his wife with Catherine, right. him not right. being like things that are understood just okay the men don't know about like it's yeah. it's almost like a stereotype the men don't worry about this this is something else but, no i know yeah, yeah I know. my ears are open too <laughs> yeah i know this is this is like yeah so i know we're short on time but i, mean, I think of like this analogy that um aquinas makes actually between like health and knowledge like the doctor can no longer can no more like put health into someone, then the teacher can put knowledge into somebody, right? The physician can like remove disease or like give medicine to help the body sort of aid in its natural processes. And the teacher can't put knowledge into someone. They can like help remove error, right? Or to like um, sort of example and sort of typify sort of through example, um, you know, practices that aid intellect in discovery, right? But thinking about that, like, yeah, how you can't put knowledge into, into somebody. And I, I think of poor Charlie Camosi, who like I invited to my speaker series um, to speak on a topic he's, you know, was is around, he was talking about like faith and medicine as a bioethicist. And at the time, I still was a pretty sort of militant pro-choice person. I was just like really awful to him. Like he was my visiting professor and I was like, you know, it was a dinner and I was like, you know, I, I, you can't stand there as a man and talk to me about abortion. Like don't, don't even do it, you know? And he just gave the model of like what it looks like to enter into solidarity with your, with your conversation partner um, as a, just like a, a turtle person. He's like, you know, why don't you, yeah, I hear, he's like, I hear you, you know, I hear you, um, uh, but would you be open to like conversing with me about this topic? And I was like, because I'm up for a challenge. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I will win. I will show you <laughs> what it means to enter into a conversation with a, with a pro-choice woman on abortion. So he was like, here's my book, you know, and let's talk about it. And we talked about it for like a year and we really got into it, you know. Um, but like that's how the growth occurs, right? And he never was out to like get me like gotcha or he wasn't he wasn't in the conversation to shame me but to again through conversation and through questioning have me come to the understanding on my own right mm. um of like the error of the way that i think about things and now i actually see abortion rooted in violence actually violence against women violence against our prenatal sisters violence against the person that's participating in the uh, procedure um through his example and so again like we talked about there's no cookie cutter way right there's nothing i can say that this is the way to do it, it takes a lot of discernment it takes hopefully relationships with the people whom you're conversing with 
prior demonstrations that you love them through the actions that you've had. And hopefully that can be fertile ground for conversations of a deeper nature. And again, it shouldn't depend who gives us the information. If it's truth, like, you know, it shouldn't have to come from like the expert or Peter Creed for us to listen to it or this person because they're published. Like anyone can be a prophet, right, of God's word. And like truth should be truth and we should be able to sort of listen. But our ears for sure can be closed for factors oftentimes that aren't under our control and for reasons that again um, are we don't know and we never know where we're going to be in that path of someone's maybe thinking about something different but we can be sowers of the seed and trust that god will give the increase and um, use discernment in the path along the way but um thank you for bringing up that example of charlie because i think you know like does can this work yeah he, he basically uh, along with the lord right took someone who was like very firmly entrenched in her ways as an older person and i think about things completely differently now because of that relationship. Kamosi mm. and Favali, they are the real they deal. They are the real deal. Mm. Yeah. They are the real deal. And I love that analogy, the Thomistic analogy. Uh, you know, the body is amazing. So a doctor helps the body do what it's supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. The intellect is amazing. Exactly. Help the intellect do what it's right. supposed to do. And it respects right. you. Totally. As a person in your intellect, you know, totally. and your freedom. That's incredible. <laughs> Well, Dr. Collier, we are switching gears and we are initiating you into true dunsehood. Because <laughs> we are going to play a game. Great. And in fact, everyone at the table is going to play this game, except for me. <laughs> it's, okay. It's the, uh, you know, it's, it's the host privilege, I guess I'm invoking. But this game is called, Which is the Worst Penance? Okay. Ooh. So... You have to decide which penance you think would actually be worse. So, Dr. Okay. Collier, the guest of honor, we are going to begin with you. Uh-oh. Which is the worst penance? Being forced to watch the Star Wars prequels Oof. for the rest of your life. Yes, I mean. The- or the Star Wars sequels. So, one in three or oh. seven through nine. Oh. <laughs> I think one through three. Yeah, I'm a pretty big, I'm a pretty big Star Wars fan, and I just actually was in Des Moines talking with Professor Bo Bonner and his family about like prequels and the sequels, one through three. I'm sorry, maybe that's the unfavorable answer. I can tell at the table people are smirking at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One through three. They they were pretty bad. They're bad. Based on production or based on like the story? The story. The story. I really think the story. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big Star Wars person, and I just like the story, actually. I mean, the production isn't great either, but the story. I just want to say, rewatching episode one with my kids, if you have kids, Jar Jar just is a lot better than when you first- Really? Yeah. I, I can't go so. back to those ever, I don't think. Yeah. yeah. I, I just can't believe how they managed to take Natalie Portman, who's supposed to be an amazing actress, and turned her into a zombie. Yeah. It's no, like, I mean... that must have been some great scripting there. All right, Trey, which is the worst penance? Uh-oh. Watching Integrate Silence every Friday or watching SpongeBob every Tuesday? <laughs> Uh, by far <laughs> watching Integrate Silence. Oh, you just <laughs> took SpongeBob oh over Integrate Oh, boy. Yeah, no, nothing oh. has rattled me more than watching a monk cut f- vegetables in just a disgusting Silently. kitchen. <laughs> like, great that they can live like that, but whenever I watch you 
cut a carrot and dust fly up. Uh, uh, I, nothing. It just all goes back to that scene for you. No, it really does. Like that's How about what the other scenes it? that that's are just in silence? It. Are you okay with the silence <laughs> and the other parts? I'm of the fine movie? with like, but like, it's okay. So what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a documentary <laughs> and express like. Take you into these Carthusian monks who live in silence. Great. I'm all about that. But it just, something about it, just, you know how like you eat things, you're like, I, can't, I don't really know why, it just didn't sit well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Into the Great Silence making me just didn't sit well. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not because I don't like silence. I love silence, but watching people just be, uh, no. <laughs> I would take SpongeBob every day. Any, yeah, yeah. Every day. Maybe so. you ought to send. A letter to the monastery with a with a piece of eight and a half by eleven that says, "Clean the counter, brother." <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, part of loving your brothers up. is cooking food in a hygienic way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like part of right, right. I would I would argue that that is an act of love. All right, there you go, folks. Trey took SpongeBob over Carthusians. Rachel, <laughs> which is the worst penance? Having to drink Folgers coffee every day or having a small rock in your shoe. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this one's tailored a little bit. Oh, Um, maybe. (laughs) I've never drank Folgers coffee, so I couldn't tell you, but I'm, as you know, I'm a little bit of a coffee snob. A little bit. (laughs) So, I... (sighs) Bad coffee or small rock in the shoe. Bad coffee would definitely be the worst penance. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, like, yes. you can move the rock to where, like, it doesn't bother you, you know? <laughs> bad coffee is just bad coffee. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Dr. Collier can't talk because she's a mom and a doctor and will drink whatever coffee yeah. is in her Yeah, again, life. cold, dead coffee is better than no coffee. <laughs> oh, That's the rule. We will have to agree to disagree <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Hunter, the next one is for you. Which is the worst penance? Growing a mustache, no beard, or shaving all of your hair. <laughs> oh, wow. What? Well, considering what? I would Yikes. look like Pedro from <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite if I did the mustache one, uh, I guess I'm just going to... I'm going to have to say that one. You would probably... I would rather probably shave, like, just my hair. You'd shave all your hair? Yeah. Shave all my hair. Hair and yeah, beard? Yeah, Or just the hair? So the mustache is worse. Yeah, the mustache wow. would definitely be worse. Yeah. Um, I would just go clean shave because then you know you could rock it. You could put a beanie. Totally. You know, yeah. uh, totally. You could you could huh. rock it. It'll grow back. But the mustache, no, yeah. I I wouldn't do that. Okay, no. vote for you, no. and all your wildest dreams will come true. All right. <laughs> quote from Pedro. Yes. All right, back to you, Doctor Collier. Which is the worst penance? Mm. Being decked out in. The Ohio State gear oh, on national TV. Oh my gosh. Or wearing a medieval hair shirt under your scrubs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Honestly. So I was in Cleveland last weekend, and I have to say, because I'm like that person, I wore like all my Michigan gear down to breakfast. Like, check me out, folks, you know? Ohio State gear, I can't do it. Oh, man. I cannot do it. You would take a Absolutely not. It was funny because oh, Carter Sneed, we have been hosting a... a, a seminar with professor sneed and professor sneed threatened to sort of like come to like the next webinar like wearing all his like notre dame gear and i'm like i'm gonna wear my michigan face paint then he upped it he's like i'm gonna start wearing alabama stuff and i'm like where are we going (laughs) yeah so i'm not wearing Ohio state stuff sorry yeah that went down a dark hole yeah yeah my goodness and the pretentiousness of they always say the 
Ohio right. State. Exactly. It's like, come on, man. Exactly. Come on. You know, there's like a clock on Twitter. It's called like the Michigan clock. And like every day it's like, it's been 847 days since Ohio State least like last beat Michigan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Fantastic. yep, let's do it, brother. Fantastic. Trey, it's now coming back to you. Which is the worst penance? Never eating Hunan's Chinese food again <laughs> or having to eat five chocolate covered cockroaches once? <laughs> Hunan's never <laughs> chocolate roaches once. <laughs> Choose wisely. Yeah. Well, I guess the cockroaches have like protein in them. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind and of chocolate. Sweet. They're and chocolate. you would get to yeah. eat Hunan's afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Is it worth it? It, you must have really tailored this because, like, my like, I'm not scared of like a whole lot of stuff, but just for some reason, cockroaches <laughs> is my downfall. Oh, I didn't even know. Nice. So does Catherine kill the roaches in the house? No. <laughs> I, no it's more like I like ah, I scream, and she goes, "What?" And I'm like, ah, and I like, freak out, and I get all <laughs> flustered, and then you just hear banging. <laughs> um, you're just banging the wall. You're not even near the cockroach. <laughs> right, You're yeah, just yeah, trying yeah. to make it Somewhere sound else. like you're I, yeah. killing I, it. A worse penance <laughs> yeah, would, would be eating the cockroaches. Okay, okay. That Fair would be enough. worse. Fair enough. Sorry, Mr. Hunan. You weren't you were <clears> good, <throat> but not that good. Wait. Yeah. You say it's worse to eat Oh, wait. No, no, no. It's the other way then. Yeah. Okay. So worse would be going without Hunan's. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I actually, yes. I actually yes. had Hunan's on Wednesday. Okay. Yes. Mr. Hunan, yes. you've been redeemed. <laughs> yeah. That's love. <laughs> that is love Ju- for your judging food. Judging that, yeah. That's probably the sole reason my cholesterol is so high. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm on Lipitor. It's worth it. Oh, man. That and <laughs> Rachel, which is the worst penance? Being forced to watch people do something incompetently or having to do everything by yourself. (laughs) She knows I went right for the heart. (laughs) (laughs) Which is worse, watching them do it incompetently or having to do it all yourself? Rachel's a go-getter, Dr. Gata. I can tell. I mean, I've learned so much of you all from these she, questions. Don't yeah. mess around. So I'm not going to lie. My first inclination is to say, I already do it all by myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I guess it would be to watch them do it incompetently. Yeah. You don't like mm-hmm. incompetence and inefficiency. Yeah. No, because if there's an efficient way to do it, why would you not do it that way? Yeah, That's yeah. right. I mean, I mean, like just efficiency going from high school to college. I mean, it just makes sense to go straight in. But You know what? Trey, some of us need a break sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love having you around, Rachel. One of the many reasons, but I just know when something needs to be done and Rachel walks in, yeah. it's gonna be like it's gonna be okay. Yeah. We got it. Hunter, your last okay. one. Which is the worst penance? Having to climb a rock wall with baby oil on your hands mm. or having to climb it blindfolded? Mm. Oh. oh definitely the baby oil. Uh, we've actually, it's funny. We had, there's like a, a team building exercise where you can climb blind, you like one person's climbing blindfolded and another person is like shouting out directions on like how they need to climb. So it's actually pretty fun. Have you done it? Uh, no, but I've led a bunch of groups to do it. Okay. I've always wanted to try it. Uh, so I would do that. Yeah. Cause the baby oil would be miserable because (laughs) that's like the opposite of what you're trying to do is like your hands are supposed to like like stick to the yeah, the yeah, hole yeah, to yeah, the yeah. baby oil. Yeah, you would just slip you probably wouldn't get very far. No. And so it'd just be really 
you know. I feel like that also like in. rough up your hands so much more if you moisturize them right before going rock climbing. Yeah. Well, you want you would have hands. to grip so hard or something mm-hmm. in order to. Well, it's like the, yeah. the like the pumice or whatever kind of rock it is would just slice through your skin so much easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. It, Maybe. Yeah, rocks I don't, are I don't rock rocks, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you want tough hands. So baby oil would actually be doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. They would making your hands soft and smooth, which the rock climber community you know people like brag mm-hmm. about, like, oh, look at my cuts yeah. on yeah. my hand. Yeah. You know, it's weird. but would weird a mus- would a mustache okay. help you? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, long hair and beanie. And okay. Patagonia. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Patagonia. Folgers Coffee yeah. would help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a Subaru. Some Chinese food. And a Subaru. And a Subaru. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Don't you dare climb yeah. a wall without a Subaru. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. What do you drive, Hunter? Is it a, is it a I don't drive a Subaru, unfortunately. <laughs> I did look at a Subaru. <laughs> I really want to. <laughs> but Daniel, who's in Italy right now, if you're listening to this, you know, Subarus, they're down. awesome. They are. Last but not least, as a special guest, Dr. Collier, you get to take the last one here. Okay. Which is the worst penance? Life with no baked goods or life with no crocheting and knitting? Yeah, I have to. I have to say that I would be really lost without my crochet and knitting. So okay. I'd be the worst penance, actually. So okay. many of you know that I picked up crochet when I was recovering from COVID nineteen, and I'm like sort of addicted to all things fiber craft now. And I crochet Christmas trees and pumpkins and hats and like beanies. And I honestly can't live with. I sort of, I probably couldn't live without. I can probably live without the baked goods. I have to say. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that that's yeah, extreme, yeah, yeah. right? Your Twitter timeline is full of both. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But the thing is, maybe you don't know from the time. I actually mostly bake for others. Ah, so you gave me an easy question because okay. I'm not sort of a sweets person. Got if you would ask it. me about crochet and like yeah. salty snacks, a harder decision, but actually I'm what the baker. Taylor Swift. Are you allergic to awesomeness? Like Oof, I know. I know all too well. I know. <laughs> he did, he, Brian's, not, Brian's not forcing me to make that tough decision of okay, Taylor I'm Swift not, and crochet, but I'm, I'm giving not, up the ga- baked goods. I'm not. Okay. You bake for others. I won't believe it until I see it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And you you are apparently so good at crocheting that you actually wear the things that you Oh, yeah. Make. No, I mean, only because I'm in Louisiana do I not have like crochet gear on right now. If you come to Michigan, I'm all decked out in crochet. That's legit. I'm legit. That's awesome. That is legit. Yep. Well, folks, there you have it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Dunce's Corner. You can always find us on Twitter at DunsePod. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Dunce's Corner. Or email us at DunsePod at gmail.com. Thanks again to Dr. Collier for joining us and for the regular Dunces for being here. Thanks and God bless. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.